This week on Priority One, season one of Star Trek Picard is over, and now the postseason interviews are all over the net, including interviews with the showrunners. In Star Trek Online, First Contact Day is around the corner, and Stowe has started teasing event information. We're also joined by Star Trek Online senior content designer Ryan Levitt to chat about creating engaging missions for players. And of course, in On Screen, we dive into the two-part finale of Star Trek Picard Season 1. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Priority One is brought to you by GamePrint. We thank them and our patrons for their support of Priority One Podcast. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 455 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Your weekly recap and review of all the major news happening in the Star Trek multiverse. This episode was recorded live on Tuesday, March 31st, 2020, and available for download or streaming on Friday, April 3rd at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. I'm Kat. And I'm Tony. And in our audio booth is our chief audio engineer, Skiffy. Hello, guys. Before we jump into the news, we want to invite you to join in on the weekly conversations, whether via social media platforms like facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast, on Twitter or Instagram at Priority One Pod, or by email to incoming at Priority One Podcast.com. Captains, it's a tough time this year, is really what it boils down to in this, in this very tumultuous global pandemic that is happening and affecting so many lives. So with that in mind, we understand that a financial contribution to something like a podcast may not be possible, and that's okay. You can support Priority One by simply sharing this show with all your friends on social media, or even an email, or while you're on a Zoom conference call and you just so happen to talk about Star Trek. Tell your friends that they can get their weekly roundup of news with reviews and commentary right here on Priority One. It's support like that that keeps this show going so a big thanks to those of you who do share the shows on our social media channels like facebook and twitch and twitter those are things that i do see and so thank you very very much now let's check out the latest news from the star trek multiverse then let's trek it out Star Trek Picard aired its final episode of Season 1, Et in Arcadia Ego, Part 2, last week. And, of course, we'll get into what happened on screen later on in the show. But for now, let's have a look behind the scenes. The Hollywood Reporter chatted up with Picard's Series 1 showrunner, Michael Chabon, and executive producer Akiva Goldsman to hear more from the men behind the curtain. Be warned, spoilers are incoming. 
The pair cleared up confusion about the original plan for the length of Picard's run, with Shaban saying, quote, We didn't decide to do this to the character from a place of we didn't want to have future seasons or anything like that. From the original plan for the show, even though our original outline changed significantly to what you eventually saw the plan and Sir Patrick's plan from the beginning was let's tell more stories with Picard. End quote. Now, if you are struggling to translate what he said, so are we, because this quote from the Hollywood Reporter makes very little sense. Can one of can one of the members of council help us translate this? Yeah, I'm gonna throw I'm gonna throw it to my co-counsel first of all. I'm I'm thinking that they're talking about how they didn't know what they were doing when they first pitched this. Yeah, I'm thinking that initially they thought something totally different, and then we're like, that's never gonna work. Uh, let's redo the whole thing. I think they started off with a one-season commitment from Stuart, and then as they got into it, Stuart's like, no, I can do more. It, it seems like that's what it was. Like, you know, he, he Stuart was always hesitant about coming back to the character anyway, but that once he got into it, he thought, yeah, this is, it's a good group, the project's working, and I could do more if there's, you know, appetite for it. Yeah, I fully think they thought he was gonna, they were like, oh, let's just kill off Picard. After this, this is gonna be his denouement. So... Right, like Logan then, was. Then, like Logan exactly, was Rex, yeah. Exactly. And yeah. then they were like, oh, hey, this could work. Yeah. Well, they should have pivoted and it should have ended, but we'll get to that more later because Shaban continues to discuss the serialization of Picard and how it is received by Trek fans like you and I, saying, quote, you really have to binge watch the whole thing in 10 episodes. And it's a tricky thing because of the whole episodic versus serialized way we watch things and how, especially Star Trek audiences, are sort of trained to expect more of that episodic mission of the week structure. And that's not what this show is, end quote. I'm sorry, they're suggesting that this is a binge-worthy show, but they didn't release it as a binged product? It's almost like they're the company that makes it and they can decide how to release it almost even, maybe? I don't know. I'm very confused now. Well, finally, Shabon touched on the challenges of writing Picard Season 2, saying, quote, First, it's got to be good, right? It has to be focused on Picard, but have room for all the other characters. It's never going to be just a show about the crew of a starship that's part of Starfleet and everyone's wearing uniforms and they're flying around, encountering alien life and weird planets. Those are the challenges we face going into season two. And I'm so excited about the story we've come up with." End quote. Now, Akiva Goldsman was there, we do promise. Just, we encourage you to check our links in the show notes to read on about what he has to say about bringing back Jerry Ryan. Elijah, I've got a question for you, but I happen to know that you did binge season one right before watching the finale. Uh, is it something you want to talk about how that adjusted your views on the show? Yeah, I think that it is certainly worth a binge. I think that I enjoyed the journey more as a binge than I did episode to episode. A lot of it having to do with what we've spoken about in the past where they have these really wonderful moments that then get kind of taken away from us. Beautiful dialogues between two characters and or monologues or whatnot or a beautiful scene that then comes to a screeching halt in in just the next scene. Then on top of that, you have to wait a week until the next part of the story. Yeah, this is one of those things where I don't think they've managed to figure out a, a formula that works with week-to-week -week television without it being serialized. 
Shabon then soloed with Variety and discussed Star Trek feedback, serialization, and the subtle inclusion of the LGBTQ community in Picard. Shabon told Variety that he read the conversations, critiques, and reviews of Star Trek, both new and old. He even went so far as to look up old Usenet boards focused on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And he was surprised to learn that fan reaction was not so dissimilar 30 years ago. There was a certain demographic Shabon didn't mind upsetting, quote, to the extent that I was aware of the kind of toxic fandom, the anti-SJW, you know, sad little corner of fandom, you just disregard that. Sometimes you're motivated to have things simply because it's possibly going to piss off or provoke people who seem to have missed the memo about just exactly what Star Trek is and always has been about." End quote. When considering fan discomfort in a darker Star Trek tone and more broadly serialization, Shabon said, quote, "...it's a little weird for me too." I can feel this deep wiring in my brain that wants Star Trek to be episodic. I can remember how odd it felt watching those serialized episodes of Deep Space Nine. I wasn't entirely sure I liked it then either. It was so far ahead of its time. It felt appropriate. I respected it. I understood it. And it made me uncomfortable as a Star Trek fan." End quote. Shabon also discussed a perceived lack of LGBTQ inclusion in Star Trek Picard, indicating it was there if you look close enough. Quote, we're doing it in an organic way, what feels organic to me. In Raffi's scene where she calls into Starfleet to try to get access for them to the artifact, the implication is there in their relationship. But she doesn't ever say, I'm going to call this woman that I used to go out with. And she doesn't say, hey, remember me? I used to be your girlfriend. End quote. The article is long and offers insight into Shabon's least favorite social media outlet, what Picard looks like going into season two, and how Shabon is handling the pandemic. Follow the link in our show notes to trek it out. What's Picard without Picard? The Hollywood Reporter sat down with the Picard portrayer and executive producer Sir Patrick Stewart to talk Picard, uniforms, and Kirk. In regards to filming the poignant final meeting of Picard and Data in Et in Arcadia Ego Part 2, Stewart said, quote, I was looking forward to it, not just because I get to work with my friend Brent Spiner again, but because the content of the scene was so serious given that Picard, he knew this would probably be the last time he would ever see his friend, end quote. Totally not doing a Picard impression, because no way. <laughs> the interview took a decidedly reminiscent tone when Stewart recalled being quite cross when refused one of his uniform costumes following the filming of TNG's All Good Things, but was later gifted the threads on a late-night talk show appearance. Stewart just, quote, I often tease my wife that I will one day wake her up one morning wearing that uniform since she grew up watching The Next Generation with her family, end quote. Sir Patrick ends the interview recalling the filming of Kirk's death scene in Star Trek Generations, quote, It was an extremely potent moment, I have to say. Working with Bill and being present when Captain Kirk finally came to an end, it was a great privilege, end quote. So what would Picard be without Data? Ooh, right. Well, this week, TV Guide interviewed the 71-year-old Spiner to talk about his many roles in Star Trek. Spiner had glowing things to say about his last meeting with Sir Patrick's Picard, telling TV Guide, quote, I think there's something really profound about what Michael Chabon wrote for Data to say about those things that are fleeting, that mortality is what makes us human, and those things that mean the most to us never last forever. I felt very much like we were doing Next Generation, end quote. Spiner, who has said on countless occasions that he would not reprise his role as Data, repeated that sentiment, quote, I wouldn't really entertain the idea of doing it again because I just don't think it would be realistic. So it seems right to me to give him this more gentle send-off. And it seemed right to me in the context 
of the entire season of Picard and what Picard himself had been experiencing because of the loss of data. I think it allows him to feel okay about it too. So it seemed like the right thing to do." End quote. That doesn't mean that Spiner is done with Star Trek though. When asked about possibly portraying Alton soon, again, Spiner said, quote, Absolutely. I love working with all of the people on the show. The new cast is fantastic. Obviously, to still be working with Patrick is a dream. Now there's a character that could conceivably go on and continue. So, of course, I'd love to. End quote. You know, I vaguely remember a Leonard Nimoy saying he never wanted to do Spock again. And also had him killed off, too. Mm. Yeah. That was his rationale and nemesis, right? I'm getting older, you know, it doesn't make any sense for Data not to age, so, you know, here's Data Swan Song and Nemesis. Oh, I guess I'll come back again. And now he's got another role he can play. I just looked it up. So Spiner has now played, I think, six different characters in Star Trek. Data, Lore, B4, Noonien Soon, the Soon and Enterprise, whose name, first name I forget, and now Alton Inigo Montoya Soon. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's you killed my prepared, father. Prepare to, to die. So, uh, so that's that's six by my count. Jeff Combs has nine. So if Spiner keeps this up, he might catch up to uh, you know the guy that played Wayun and Brunt. Here's the thing: I seem to recall an episode of TNG where they claimed Data would age. Anybody remember that, or am I imagining it? Uh, no, there it it was talked about, and I think that in one of like the future, I don't know. They they talked about it, but I don't know that it ever happened. Oh, well, in All Good Things, remember, he had his he had a stripe. 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 Yeah. <laughs> For distinguishment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, a stripe that, if you look carefully, Soji has in her hair. What? Really? Well, that brings us to our first community question this week. What do you think about Brent Spiner returning as Inigo Soon? Let us know in the comments section for this episode at PriorityOnePodcast.com or by replying to our community question post on our social media channels like Facebook and Twitter. Well, Captains, that's all the news we have to trek out this week. Now let's find out what happened in the world of Star Trek gaming. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. Star Trek Online has posted the official announcement for this year's First Contact Day celebration event. The event, which has been updated from previous years, runs from April 2nd through April 23rd and will now include a new mission along with the annual Phoenix Rocket Launch Contest. For the first time, players will have the opportunity to step back in time to April 4th, 2063, the day before the historic date when Zephram Cochran took humanity's first warp flight. Under the direction of Temporal Agent Daniels, we'll team up with Seven of Nine to find and reverse changes to the timeline that the Borg have made, all in an effort to finish what they attempted to do in the film Star Trek First Contact. By completing either the new mission or the Phoenix Rocket Launch Contest for a total of 14 days, players will earn the usual First Contact Day event bundle and a brand new universal console, the Temporal Vortex Probe. This console provides passive bonuses to exotic damage and temporal operative bridge officer ability cooldowns, along with a turn rate bonus scaled by auxiliary power. When activated, the console launches a probe, which opens a temporal vortex, 
that travels towards a target's location, inflicting damage and slowing enemy ships. The event also includes a new standard Zen buyout and bonus Dilithium payout options. For each day of progress, players will also have their choice of 17 new uniform badges. Ooh, the end game space Barbie is happening even more. The badges teased so far in Ambassador Kale's Twitter post include Trill, Ferengi, Liberated Borg, and a symbol for Idik, among several others. Kale also noted a couple of quality of life updates to the event. So what do you think? Will we see the Enterprise or any of her crew? Could there be a surprise cast appearance other than Seven of Nine? Are these Borg timeline changes setting up Stowe to diverge from the, the Prime timeline? What, what do you guys think? No. I don't know. I don't think so. Was the crew, the Enterprise, there the day before? I guess it was the day before. Yeah. Yes, they arrive in Star Trek First Contact. They arrive the day before First well, Contact. Well, I'd like to go see Deanna and uh, Zephram Cochran drinking at the bar. <laughs> now, don't make them criticizing my counseling techniques. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet I bet they're going to do what they we saw a little bit of in the, the, the big Starship Enterprise scene at the end of the uh, anniversary episode. They'll probably be stealing bits and pieces from First contact like you know remember back to the future too where marty's sneaking around and he you know, he, he sees the fight and you know his dad goes to the door i mean you see you see the movie from a different angle i suspect they're probably going to do something similar here oh like avengers endgame yeah that too yeah yeah, that yeah. Too. Well, as long as we don't have to listen to ooby dooby we do Like, how is that the song? I must have been cheap licensing. Sorry, Elijah, that's a copyright strike. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a. It's completely fair use because we're discussing it yeah. at, in the moment, so it's allowed. Plus, there he did it very go. badly, so it's obviously parody and satire. <laughs> how dare you? Star Trek Online has also just announced the addition of a new Tier Six ship to the Infinity Lockbox. Along with adding the Kelvin Divergence lockbox prizes to the Infinity Box, they've also added a brand new Tier 6 Ferengi Marauder named after Quark himself. What ship? The ship? Our ship? My ship? The T6 Quark Marauder is a welcome T6 update to the T5 Ferengi Decora, including Commander Engineering slash Miracle Worker and Lieutenant Commander Science slash Miracle Worker Specialist Seating. The ship carries a 5-3 weapons layout, a 9 degree per second turn rate, and the extra universal console slot common to Miracle Worker ships. Naturally, like all Ferengi vessels, it also includes a built-in Dabo table, bank, and exchange terminal. To see the full specs of the new ship, check out the blog link in our show notes. So excited! Now, Skippy, <laughs> you have a marauder, don't you? A very special marauder. <gasps> I do. Lucky. Navy. I want to say that so, also came with the battle module 4000. I don't remember. It does. It does because you can't get that console unless you have that Nagus ship. So what is the battle module? What is that? Uh, that is the console that converts the ship from defense mode into battle mode and unlocks a missile defense system and a couple of other powers. I think it's got a total of three powers. Huh. Yeah, the the, the Decora has that though, right? Or has a version of that. Yeah, I, I think this is the first time. So the... 
The Decora came with the Battle Module 3000. Oh. The it's only three it's a new set. Marauder has the 4000. And I, I want to say the Nagus had a... I, I thought the Nagus had an upgraded 3000, but I can't remember exactly what it was now. I'm not sure, but if you have the three-piece set from the Lobby store, like the Ferengi, you know, weapons, you get like a special duty officer mission that gets you really cool stuff if you have that set equipped. If you didn't know that, because... I uh, didn't know that. We do have a Ferengi I fleet in that. the Armada and, you know, pretty much all Ferengi all the time. <laughs> Wait, break that down. Break that down okay, for us again. So, so you buy... You have the Lobby set of the Ferengi weapons. There's like the rocket launcher and the console and that console also, you know, is a set with the other ship sets, the Nandi and the Nagus. But if you equip the Ferengi set from the Lobby store, that brings up a special, you know, like the the traitor that you summon, it summons some Ferengi guys, and it's like a duty officer mission, and you can run it every 20 hours. The Ferengi privateer duty officer mission. And it's only only runs if you have that set equipped. And what kind of stuff does it... Oh, you know, it out. does, like, R&D stuff, you know, random... Just random stuff. It, it could be any number of things. It's pretty cool. Is there anything in those rewards that are exclusive mm, to that no, set? No, no. It's just drops, okay. you know, random drops. But it's still pretty good stuff. Well, that brings us to our next community question. Are you excited for the Tier 6 Decora update? The Quark Marauder? Let us know in the comments section for this episode or... Just be sure to follow us on social media like Facebook or Twitter. Late last week, Star Trek Online announced an immediate three-week event from March 26th through April 16th, acknowledging that, quote, we're all feeling the crush of being at home right now, end quote. This special event will reward 50% bonuses to content that rewards fleet or reputation marks. So while you're looking for something to pass the time stuck at home, maybe now's the chance to finish those tier six reputations you've been grinding away at. Now's the time to introduce a new reputation, I will say that. <laughs> If they're going to. Oh, please don't. We have so many. Yeah, actually, you're right. You're right. I, I really don't want to go through another six tiers of a reputation. Panda already ruined this ship calling it the Dequarka. <laughs> really, Panda? <laughs> really? <laughs> That's amazing. Actually, speaking of fleet and fleet mates, Kat, why don't you tell us what's going on in Armada Oh, news? man, we have exciting Armada news this week. First of all, though, we have moved a TFO Tuesday to TFO Thursday, so now join us every Thursday while we run missions, earn marks, and dilithium. To check the time, if you're a member of the Armada, just go to your events window, and it will tell you what time it starts in your local time zone. Also, for the Armada, starting April 1st, we are celebrating the Terran Empire. So, during the month of April, it is all things Mirror Universe in the Armada. We change the Armada name. Everyone has special, you know, Terran Empire names. We've got cool outfits. We run events, but we also do daily giveaways. So if you're not a member of the Armada and you want to join, just visit PriorityOneArmada.com because you may win a Mirror Universe ship. It's a T5 ship, but we are giving out one a day. Yes. In other gaming news... For those of you who play Star Trek Timelines, this week, there's a special rerun of DS9's baseball-themed The Galactic Series as a hybrid faction-slash-galaxy event. The event features special crew like Niners Ezri, Martian Quark, Nurse Garland, and Niners Rom. Variants of these crew, along with crew possessing the athlete trait, will receive bonuses during the event. So, open up your mobile devices and be sure to log in to Star Trek Timelines. 
That's a wrap for Star Trek Online and gaming news. Now we welcome Star Trek Online senior content designer Ryan Levitt. Security clearance level 3 or above is required to access files. This is Captain Benjamin Sisko. Authorization Sisko Alpha 1 Alpha. Logs accessed. First of all, for those of our listeners who may be new, who haven't listened to all 455 episodes of Priority One Podcast, why don't you give us a a brief recap of of what it is that you are responsible for at Cryptic Studios? What is a senior content designer? So the content design team, what we end up doing is we create all of the episodes that you guys play through. We will figure out what is the story we're trying to tell, figure out what are the characters who need to be in it, and then we, with the help of of the environment, our team, build that area and we populate it with with, with the mission objectives, with all of the NPCs, with the enemies that you're going to fight, we write all of the dialogue. Like we, we, We pretty much end up putting the entire episode together. Now, when it comes to the dialogue, my understanding is that you also write much of the dialogue. It's not, for instance, our Vera or the Star Trek Online writer doing the entire dialogue set for you guys, right? You are active, actively a part of that. The entire content team will usually write first pass dialogue, and then we hand it off to our writer, Paul Reed, who makes it all better, more internally consistent, uh, more in the voice of the characters, more grammatically correct. He just he, he makes us look like we know what we're doing. Now, most recently, your work can be seen in the anniversary episodes for the 10th anniversary of Star Trek Online, featuring the voiceover work of Sonequa Martin-Green and Jerry Ryan. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about what what it took to put those missions together? What made them different from past missions in terms of the scope of work? It, it definitely is a lot bigger in scope than our, our uh, what we normally do. So originally we were looking at making the Measure Morality as one episode. It was by what we consider eight acts long. The standard episode we do, three or four acts long. So it was gonna be at least double the size of any episode. When we started doing play tests of it, we realized that we were sitting in there for a couple hours and not getting through the entire episode. Like maybe we should split it in half, and you know, if players want to keep going, they can keep going. But let's give them at least a good stopping point, if not. So even uh, even that two hours a piece, uh, when I was playing through the missions, they did seem long, right? I mean, they did seem more movie length rather than episode length. Definitely. Yeah. Was that was that, I mean, and that was okay because it was the 10th anniversary, or is that something you guys are heading towards? No, this was definitely something we were like, we're never doing this again. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's just we were packing everything in because yeah, it's our 10th anniversary. 10th anniversaries only happen once. We had the advantage that a lot of the maps, to a degree, were already made. We already had Bray We already had uh, the Iconian homeworld. There were some shortcuts that we were able to take advantage of, but no, we we put a lot of work into this into these two episodes. Now, in the tenth anniversary missions, there are some remarkable environments and cinematic moments from the, I think specifically of Discovery when you have to capture the Red Angel. Talk to us a little bit about scenes like that. Uh, We can focus on that one particularly, or if there's another one that you can think of, and what it takes to, you know, piece these things together for a mission like that. So we knew 
early on that we wanted to do something uh, with Sneakle Martin Green uh, and figured that a really moral storyline for her was the uh, the Ready Joel moment because really at that point we were all trying to figure out what the hell they're going to do regarding control. So once we had once we knew that our environment our team got tons of reference images and were able to put it all together and, and make it feel like you were actually in that location from the show. And then Weston Pierce, our our animator, he comes in and performs some sort of black magic ritual and next thing you know there's this incredible cutscene that's that's there we were early on talking about different ways we were going to do shortcuts to to make that scene because it's really hard to make a cutscene television accurate when one one thing is moving people around and the other one is trying to get pixel perfect sliders weston just somehow makes it all work like it's really amazing the things that he's done do you guys plot out where those cutscenes are going to be as part of the mission design, or does your animator come in and say, hey, I bet I can do something with that there? So what ends up happening usually is when we are pitching to our leads kind of our vision of the episode, we will put in, like, oh, you have a party of cutscene here, there'll be a cutscene there, and we try to get all the big moments there. But then what will happen is during playtests, there might be smaller moments where it's like, man, we're just... You know, the player, it's so easy for the player to miss this moment. Let's just throw in a cutscene uh, and, and make sure that the focus is where it needs to be. So it's kind of part of your story pacing. You say, hey, we want everyone to take a minute to watch this or see this. Yes. Now, it's not just a matter of kind of, cut, you know, cut and paste, but you're also a game master, right? You're the one that is designing objective to objective, puzzle, no puzzle, Talk to us about being a game master and creating a mission for a player that isn't just about having them read through a story, because this is not a novel. This is a game, right? We have to keep the players entertained, and, and so to speak. Tell us about that process. What are you always kind of mindful of when creating a, a mission like this? So there, there are a bunch of things. But one of the most important things, of course, is pacing. If there's too much combat in a row, that can be fatiguing. If there's too much story in a row that can also be fatiguing in a different way um so it's important to kind of be able to change things up and make sure that you're never getting too bogged down on one type of gameplay now that's hard for this mission because it's all ground right exactly so one thing that was really important for me in this episode specifically in part one was since we knew we were going to be forcing you to make moral choices and have the excalbian call you out on them it really mattered to me to give the player even the slightest amount of agency. So that way, when they're telling the Scalbian, you know, I 100% believe in what I chose, they can actually say, no, I chose that. I, I made the call. That's kind of an important thing to me. It always sucks when you have to defend the choice you made when there was no choice. I want to ask you something about, well, rather, I've, I feel like I, this is something that has creeped into the game over the last several years or so um there there are tfos or missions where for instance i think of battle of binary stars now that's not one of your missions did you you didn't do that one correct uh the battle of binary stars i did do oh you did do okay okay so i have a question about something like battle of binary stars right in the beginning 
uh, of most TFOs, there's a, a countdown timer, right? I noticed recently that those timers, those holds seem to be taking a little longer. Like at Battle of Binary Stars, which we all did for our dailies this, this last event, I think about like waiting for that opening scene where, or rather the opening action, where the sarcophagus ship shoots on the Shenzo, or maybe either, even in between the cutscene where the cleave ship cuts through the, um, the other one. Like, is there, is it, is it a limitation of the mechanic where a player cannot X out of that? Or is it just something that just never was thought of? It, can, it, it often is different things. Um, so first of all, at the beginning of a mission, or the beginning of a TFO, the reason we have a delay is to make sure that all players have gotten onto the map and are ready to actually progress. We're waiting for the, the Sargophagus ship to hit to attack the Shenzhou, a choice I made specifically to try and create parity with the show where Sargophagus ship shot first. You know, they, they were the Han Solo there. So it wouldn't make sense if players could just fly out and, and start attacking before that happens. Um, so that's why kind of that worked out the way it did. As for the Cleave ship, uh, the reason that's not skippable, showing showing a bit of how the sausage is made, there's actually a lot happening behind the scenes during that cutscene of us rearranging the battle and changing where different ships are, who's, who's actually still alive and who, who shouldn't be. Because of that, I, I use the cutscene effectively as a uh, as a screen to cover creatures uh, sp creatures spawning and despawning. So that's kind of why that's not skippable. Usually, we would make a cutscene like that skippable, but the problem is, is it's just it's so important for us to be able to uh, hide some of the ugly stuff that's happening behind the scenes. Right, because you're getting that set up for the Clark and the Jaeger, and then so you can go rescue escape pods during that time. Exactly. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Mind you, I'm not asking because I'm saying, oh, it's so terrible. Like, oh, I don't want to do it. I'm, Battle of Binary Stars is a beautiful map and a, a, a really fun mission to play, especially, you know, if, if really what you're in the mood for is to blow some stuff up. I mean, it's one of the best maps to do it. But, you know, I'm sure you can understand that after when you do it once a day, you know, to get those things, you kind of want to speed through it a little more than, than normal. No, I totally get that. So yeah, you know, I was just a little curious about, you know, those choices as uh, as you create a mission. Most of the time, if a cutscene is not skippable, especially a long cutscene, it's because it's hiding stuff that's uh, that has to happen before the cutscene is over. Like nine times out of 10, if we are making a long cutscene, we want to make it skippable because we understand that, yeah, it's cool the first time, but after the first time, players are going to want to skip and now I want to go back to the 10th anniversary a moment. Um, you know, we have reviewed it. We've had Al, for instance, come on and talk a little bit about it. I'm hoping you can share with us some of the behind the scenes, nitty gritty things that took to make that mission. I remember, for instance, Al was talking about the uh, control, you know, and that critter. You know, what, from what you remember in, in designing this mission, what was the, the biggest challenge or, or what were like these things that you thought were going to be like, ah, I'll do that in 30 minutes and ended up taking 30 days? Well, the control flight definitely was one of the hardest things that we had done just because it was a new partner that we wanted to, we wanted to make it feel as tense as it is in the show. Like, you know, we have that moment with uh, control trying to take Michael Burnham and only, the only reason she survives is because Spock took the magnet. We don't want to weaken that moment by, it's like, oh no, if you just shoot him, he's done. Like, 
it doesn't feel like it's the same creature that you're, you're, you're dealing with. So, so we want to make that feel different. So there were definitely a bunch of iterations, especially with messaging, so that the player knew what they should be doing at every step of that battle and making sure it just it felt right. I mean, I think for most of the episode, the big points were those the battles that were more gimmicky than, than straightforward. Uh, so the, the, the first cat fight, just again making sure it just it felt right. I'm sure you've seen you've seen a few zombie movies. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you know you know like when the zombie horde shows up and you're just like that's a lot of zombies. Yeah. We had that with the board. So the hallway before the room, in earlier iterations, you could go back into that hallway. And if you did, you wouldn't be able to get back into the room because it was just shoulder to shoulder board all the way out to, out out into the hall back into the room it was it was nuts uh so we actually had multiple iterations of reducing the amount of board that were being uh spawned so if you thought there was a lot of board in in, in it now like it was probably about three or four times that still could have used another pass to take it down just a notch just a notch or or, or two notches <laughs> or two, yeah two notches probably would have been good there's an awful lot of Borg in that one. Tony, what what level are you playing on? Are you playing on normal or advanced? Normal. Your missions. Oh, yeah. You see, I, I do advanced, man. Complain to me again when you do your missions in advance. I, I I I just still don't like I just still don't like ground. I still complain about ground missions. All of the ground missions I complain about. It's funny because when we play tests, everyone has a very different build. Uh, Al likes to play an engineer, so he's constantly putting down turrets and thinks everything is easy. <laughs> And then you have someone like Jeremy Randall, who's always trying out some of the new crazy uh, weapons. So he, uh, he had, I think, at one point, like the Tsukatsu gloves, and he was just running around punching, bored to death, left, right, and center. <laughs> so you're saying what I should, I should have been punching them? That's my, yes. that's what I should have been doing. Okay. All right, silly me trying to attack from Borg from range. Okay. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. those yeah. gloves are awesome, and and the mind meld device, you can punch those Borg. It is sweet, and you can kick them in the head. Yep. And you can punch the Iconians too, which is something you never think you would uh, see in, in Star Trek. So, Ryan, I'm curious, how long now have you been at, at Cryptic Studios, if you don't mind my asking? I'm coming up on five years. You've been there just about half of the length of time that, that the game has been running, right? Yeah, I, uh, I joined just as the Iconian War ended. Okay, so what are you doing, or what are you keeping in mind? as a game master right as the the man putting together these missions and challenging players what are you keeping in mind moving forward how do you keep the game fresh after 10 years of being open to the public and and you're five on, on working on it one, one great thing about working on an ip like star trek especially with it having now two uh, shows and you know more coming. There's a lot of content to pull from. So so at least from the story, we're able to create new things all the time, and that feels really. As far as gameplay is concerned, it's hard. Um, sometimes it's really hard to, to try and come up with something that we haven't done before, um, or if we have, or if we actually have done before that someone else wouldn't have done better already. So it's a, that, that is a challenge. But I'm always trying to find new gameplay that makes things feel a little different. The first TFO I worked on uh, was Days of Doom. 
think you and I talked about it way back when at my first uh, STLV. Day of Doom is where you're fighting the Doomsday Machine, right? Yeah, and, and you're, you're dropping... That's a hard mission, man. You're dropping bombs in front of its mouth. It's a good one. It's a good one if you've got a pug that knows what they're doing. I Or, or a group, not a pug, but rather if, you, if you're going into it with a group of people that know what they're doing and you have like one escort taking care of the bomb. But I've done it recently. I've been doing more and more pugs taking advantage of the, the random TFO bonuses. And if I get that mission and I'm in a pug, it, it either it runs great or it's just impossible to finish. <laughs> It definitely can, yeah, it can definitely have a, a very different experience with people who know what they're doing. That was my, that was my first uh, TFO, and you know, I, I was inspired by Django from Legend of Zelda, dropping bombs in front of it, and that was something that hadn't been done in, in Star Trek before, or in Star Trek Online before. So I'm always trying to find, like, weird, quirky gameplay that I can, I can have just to make things feel a little bit more fresh that way. So it's not just a straight shooting battle. There's additional things that you need to do or a different twist on it. A lot of times people talk about how if you're going into a TFO, it's going to be uh, just a DPS uh, check. If players don't have the right DPS, then no one wants to play with them. They're going to get kicked out of groups. Um, I hate that sort of mentality. So it's always important to me when I'm creating, especially TFOs, uh, that there are things that are not just DPS. Did you work on the competitive ones? Uh, I did. I worked on uh, binary circuits, and I worked on the uh, Adelphus core. Uh, I'm like, now I can't remember the space names, but I love those if you can get people to play them with you that know what they're doing. Yeah, uh, that, was a, that was a lot of fun putting those together. Uh, my favorite part of that uh, definitely was when we got the... Uh, critter support to become a board on uh, binary circuits and you could drop one of those uh it like yank the players we originally it was originally what these and Kefi were using and we were able to kind of create a board version of it and if you did it on the first puzzle with the invisible floors it was guaranteed to be oh i didn't even think about using that oh man <laughs> I'm gonna revisit those TFOs now. Yeah, no, it's super trolly, but it's really funny every time it happens. Huh. All right. Well, yeah, those TFOs are really fun. The puzzles are really fun. Um, I, the space ones, too, you know, where you have to fly up and unlock the door or even fly around and find the right color combination to unlock the door. That's really challenging, and you, you do need to work together as a team, so I like that it kind of makes you do that. Yeah, that one went through a lot of iterations as well, but... I'm really happy with how it turned out. We've been talking about the Borg a little bit as, you know, one of those recurring villains in Star Trek Online. There's a new power. There's a new power called uh, Assimilate, where you can assimilate your enemies, right? So they become a drone. And Al was talking about how he's surprised that it didn't break more missions than he thought. You laugh. You laugh right now. So I'm curious what it, what as a content designer with a power like that, a new ability like that, what do you have to be conscious of or how do you have to be a part of those conversations and meetings to raise your hand and be like, um, that's going to break missions. We have a lot of critters that they're load bearing, but not in the sense of like a JRPG load bearing boss. Like, you know, now that everything is breaking, but they're load bearing in that the, the mission might be specifically 
specifically looking for something that that character is doing. So obviously, if suddenly the character became a Borg and got a whole new uh, AI, that could potentially break things. So when something like that comes up, we need to know how it can trigger. For example, we have like, we might make a critter not killable until it has done some sort of action. If power only works when it kills a, uh, a, a critter, that's fine because our critter will die. But things like that, where it's very easy to not think through the ramifications. Um, but we have a pretty good team. Like our systems designers have spent so many hours in the game that they're actually really good about thinking of what would break if they just threw something in without without giving it the full thought. So Ryan, I want to thank you again for joining us on this episode of Priority One Podcast. Why don't you tell us, so today announced was, as we record this, first contact day anniversary special and that there will be a mission sending us back in time. Is that something that you worked on? Uh, No, I'm working on something else right now. Oh, what's that about? Can you tell us? (laughs) I bet you know the answer. Uh, Summer event? Nope. So not summer, not first contact day so something else mm. or is it something for is it something for first contact day something else oh gee <laughs> just shrugged at us he just shrugged at us but non-answer i like it oh gee <laughs> well ryan this is the part of the show where we open up the microphone to you is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you were eager to uh to talk about on the show so the best thing about dimension morality literally every person on STO influenced it one way or the other, uh, whether it was specifically actively working on it, being a consultant for it, being a playtester and giving feedback for it. I don't think there's any piece of content that we can say that for other than this session. So it was truly an honor being a part of it because it was just, I really do feel like this was an opus moment. We have such an awesome team, and I think that the episode really shows what happens when that awesome team works together. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, kudos to you. Congratulations on a uh, wonderful celebration of 10 years of Star Trek Online. Uh, We're looking forward to your upcoming projects and your upcoming missions for us to tackle. That's going to be really exciting. Ryan, as always, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thanks for inviting me. On screen. Computer. Set Star Trek Picard's season one finale, Et in Arcadia Ego, on screen. In an effort to save time, and because we know that most of you have already watched the season finale, we're going to forego the witty summary this week. All you need to know is that we're on the android planet. The androids want to summon Unicron. I am Unicron. And Picard has to pull a maneuver like the olden days. Oh, and someone does die at the end. Let's jump in. First things first, let's talk about some of the touchstones and Easter eggs to older Trek that you may have missed. Up first, the biggie is definitely the mentioning of the Picard maneuver. So in the second part of the finale, Gerardi, trying to figure out what Picard's plan is, talks about the Picard maneuver on the Enterprise, to which Picard wittingly replies, nope, that was on the Stargazer. Then Riker refers to the Treaty of Algeron, which was first heard of and discussed in TNG's the episode, The Pegasus. Also, much like in the first episode of Picard, Blue Skies is played again, this time sung by Isa Brionis herself. 
This is how the series opens, and this is how Data's story ends. A callback to Nemesis. And of course, at the very end, Seven and Rafi are playing a game of Kalto. Kalto was seen played often by Tuvok in Star Trek Voyager. All right, with those Easter eggs and touchstones aside, we have a lot to discuss because we decided to merge both episodes into one review for on screen. So sit back, relax, and let's talk about Et in Arcadia Ego. In preparation for this segment, I outlined the two-part episode essentially in scenes. I did a scene breakdown for them. Not a traditional scene breakdown, a, a professor looking at this would fail me for sure, but uh, just something to help guide the conversation. Part one opens with a prologue. There's a firefight in, in the orbit around uh, Capelius. We see the Borg cube flowers, whatnot. The next scene, we are on the Serena. Gerardi discovers Picard's condition after he passed out. And then Picard addresses the brain condition by just telling everybody to STFU and not mention it to him ever again. Does it bother anyone that we're not calling the brain condition by name? Yes. Yeah, I mean, isn't it supposed to be aromatic syndrome or no? They never... It's just an abnormality? Yeah. Maybe they're... Yeah, I don't know. They never paid it off. They waited all 10 episodes and they never, ever paid it off. And I'm a little upset about that. It was aromatic syndrome for sure in the finale of TNG. Yes. But when the timeline collapsed, in the conclusion of All Good Things, was it still aromatic syndrome? I mean, that's unclear, but you assume so. You assume that he's still going to get it. Yeah, it's it, it, it's not explicit that Q cured it or anything like that, or that that condition was tied to the weird space anomaly or anything like that. But it would have been a good throwback. It would have been a nice interleaving of the episodes, uh, all good things in the Picard series. Uh, and it would have made sense internally because he was doing a lot of stupid things throughout the course of the series. I mean, a lot of impulsive things. Uh, some some gambles that were probably not justified. It would have been good. It would have been another, this character is flawed. This character has taken some hits over time, and this character is not the Jean-Luc Picard we knew once upon a time. Really disappointed they didn't pay that off. Now, moving on, we stop in on the Borg cube that crash-landed. And mind you, I have to admit that the special effects for when the Borg cube is brought down and it hits the atmosphere, I thought the special effects for this episode were really good. I loved it. Those orchids, space orchids, whatever, those were amazing. Yeah, I, I enjoyed those too. It shows that they took time to address science, right? It's not like The Expanse, right? The Expanse is very science-heavy and they have a team of actual scientists helping to keep the show honest. In Star Trek, it, it was kind of refreshing to see that, yeah, that's exactly how a Borg cube would react entering an atmosphere of a planet crash landing, you know? I thought that was cool. Although, how weird would it have been if it had landed on one of the angled sides? <laughs> it was like, that would have been awkward. I still think it would have collapsed more than it did, but that's okay. Probably, probably. Now, here's what happens in the cube. The first thing we see once Picard arrives is they talk about Hugh, and it's a throwaway line. Something atrocious had to have happened in order to push, quote, a gentle soul to violence, end quote. We're going to jump ahead here in a moment, but Seven then Spartan kicks Narissa into the void of the Borg cube as vengeance for killing Hugh. But that's all we get. That's really all we get about Hugh's death. Well, I guess we don't know Seven and Hugh's relationship. That just seemed like it would have more emphasis. 
We never saw them together in the series. It was sort of implied that they knew each other when she came in and said, where's Hugh to Elnor? You don't get the the sense that there was as much of a paths crossing and, and a commonality of purpose between those two characters, unlike Icheb and Seven, where right. you know that's a, a character-defining moment uh, for, for Seven, I think. It's this, this was more of a just a, yeah, too bad about that guy. Right. Got to yeah. do some bad guy killing now. My main issue with Picard as a series, and Hugh uh, is exemplifies this uh, feeling, is that Hugh died a couple of episodes ago. It's in the past. They've moved on. They're not really going to uh, deeply address it again. And that's been my issue with Picard since episode one. It is a serialized story where they're still telling stories that are self-contained in one episode. Yeah. Oh, true. Yep. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yep. Yeah. Nope. This is they—they they can't let go of the hour-long format, mm-hmm. and they don't. It's—it's that—that is a, a central tension that they're going to have to fix if they're going to keep doing this. Because, like I've said a couple times now, they're making these episodes for the future. They're making this episode for their subscription service where people will come to CBS All Access a year from now, two years from now, and they'll say, oh yeah, I remember that Picard series that came out. I had never checked it out back then. I should check it out now. And that's going to be even more jarring later on. Yeah, in my opinion, they just succumbed to the trope of we got to kill whoever it is that you're emotionally connected to as an audience for no reason at all. I mean, Hugh's death did nothing to inspire the momentum of any of the primary characters. Picard, it was a throwaway line. Ah, he's dead. Oh, well. You know, Seven. All right, sure. She Spartan kicks Nerissa because she's angry that that Nerissa took his life, but... She was going to do that anyway. Let's be frank. She was going to do it anyway. She was going to do it anyway. I mean, the one it seemed to impact the most was Elnor, right? Right, right, right. But Elnor is a sensitive soul. I mean, he, you know, he's just naturally more open to his emotions and feelings. So, yeah, I expect Elnor to be upset, you know, and feel immediate connection to somebody. He's an empathic soul, not an empath, but just an empathic soul. All right, so moving on, the next scene, we're on Capelius Station. So we're at the Synth Village, or as Rafi likes to call, Synthville. And if you notice, when they arrive and they first meet Arcana, the music underscoring is so very Jeff Russo and reminiscent of the Kelvin Timeline soundtrack. But anywho, that's just something to pay attention to the next time you watch it. If you haven't already canceled your subscription to CBS All Access. What I particularly liked about this scene was when Arcana, or it could have been Saga, I'm not sure, one of them, walk up to Picard and start. she starts tracing his eyes. And like the moment she did it, all I could think about was Hook. There you are, Peter. There you are, Peter. <laughs> there you are, Picard. Yes, yes. That's uh, exactly what I thought It reminded me of that, too. Of. That's funny. We're also introduced. The big moment of this scene is that we are reintroduced to Brent Spiner playing the role of Alton Inigo Soong. Dun, dun, dun. How do we feel about that? How do we feel about Brent Spiner reprising, not reprising a role, but actually now playing an entirely new role? In a word? Inconceivable! (laughs) (laughs) I loved it. I I mean, he's great. And he could play any song. You know, it's, it's plausible. He ha- he's played all the songs. All of them. Yeah, yeah. that's why I'm all, like, literally hey, all yeah. of them. 
They all, I mean, why wouldn't he play it? Yeah. He, he plays a Sung on Enterprise. He plays all the Sungs in TNG except for the mom, obviously. Oh, give him a chance. He'll do that too. Yeah, give him yeah. a chance. He'll play mom, yeah. Mama Sung. Yeah. And now he's now he's a brother. Oh, that'd be brilliant. Yeah, his, yeah, his, 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 his secret son. It's Noonien Soon's secret son. And next season of Picard, he'll have a secret daughter as well. Oh, uh, that would be right. brilliant. I, they, you know what? If you're going to do this... They just own it, right? If if the if, if the granddad is gonna look like Noonien, and Noonien's kid's gonna look like him, then you just gotta go all out, embrace it, just just go the whole <laughs> bit. So in this scene, it is revealed to us that uh, Alton Inigo Montoya Sung is in fact the biological son of Data's creator, Noonien Sung with the striking resemblance to Data and, of course, uh, his father. So, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it was definitely fun to see Brent Spiner coming back into playing the same character that he did on Enterprise. Yeah. Just saying. Sure. That's, yeah, that's one way to put it for sure. Absolutely. In this case, his character is a cyberneticist who is really good at creating synthetic bodies, from what we're told. Go figure. He's really good at following the work of Dr. Ira Graves in The Schizoid Man from season two of TNG, where yeah. they had the, the body transfer thing, where oh, where yeah. the mad scientist isolated on a planet uh, gets a moment alone with Data and then knocks him out and uh, puts his brain inside uh, Data's brain. So, yeah. Huh. They, they, again, another missed opportunity for another callback there. Uh, they, they really, they really should have given a nod to that, uh, to that episode. But yeah, this is work that had already been done in the Star Trek universe, transferring a living brain into a, a synthetic body. So, all right, now moving on, we get an explanation of what the plot's about, right? So now, Sutra, which is one of Soji's sisters, played of course by Issa Briones. Um, is trying to figure out what the admonition really means. And in order to do so, instead of going on a journey to the Conclave of Eight Octanary Solar System, where the Romulans first discovered this messaging trampoline, <laughs> she'll just mind meld. This, this synth has the ability to mind meld and interpret the admonition. So this is very much another moment where where it's tr it is implied to us they try to sell us on the fact that Gerardi really wasn't at fault. This is that scene where they tried to convince us that that Gerardi really isn't a murderer. Did it work? I don't know. But what I really want to focus on is the admonition here a second. Actually, I don't. No, you don't because it just stopped making it <laughs> it didn't make sense when they first did it. And it makes even less sense now. All right. Was it the same, though, when uh, Sutra mind melded? Okay, let's get to that in a minute. But uh. Uh, was it the same as when Sutra saw it through Gerardi as how Gerardi saw it? Because it seemed different. Like, it had extra bits. That's kind of what bothers me about it, that this seems like a, a really bad idea. Because if you've ever played the game Telephone, you know that you're by the time it reaches the third or fourth person, the phrase is changed in some way, shape, or form. And here we are, Commander O, mind-melding Gerardi, and then with whatever she wanted to mind-meld, right? She, you know, she could have hidden some of the psychic ability, right? She obviously, the mind-meld had even more weight to it because she put a psychic block on Gerardi, according to the previous episode. But anywho, maybe Gerardi didn't see all of the admonition. Maybe, you know, so how, how can we trust... 
the implication was that you that the biological mind couldn't understand the message. So when O took it from the magical trampoline, O didn't get the message. She got the entire message, but didn't understand it. Then she passed the message that she didn't understand with the layer of stuff she didn't understand onto Gerardi, then put a psychic block on it. Then the android, who had done a lot of reading of books of Vulcan uh, telepathy stuff, mind-melded with Gerardi, got past the psychic block, got the entire message, which she understood because her brain is synthetic, and then exposition time tells everybody what's up so uh, look this is this is one of those moments where i think it was a missed opportunity yeah. i i think that we should have taken the synths to the octanary star Definitely. system it was enough of a plot point where it was mentioned several times throughout the course of the 10 episodes where we should have had one of the synths put their hands on the magical trampoline yep yeah if we had 10 more episodes, we could have gone there. Well, you see, that's the thing, is that you don't need 10 more episodes for this. I, I think to, to there are some scenes that we could have done, that we could have sacrificed. Mm. I mean, uh, one of the scenes that I, I would have absolutely have sacrificed off the top of my head is the multiple hollow scene with uh, re, all the various Rioses. Oh, you're going back? I'm going back, yeah. Oh, wow. Because there are moments in these 10 episodes where we could have invested that time and those production dollars maybe into into giving us a different perspective and another angle that helped move the plot. So I think about, you know, we could have done without the hollows. Yeah, the stuff that happened in episodes seven, eight, and nine should have happened in, what, three, four, five? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. things like that. So we'll get to m more on that later. Moving on, we're now introduced to the Golem. That's, yes, that's Gollum. That's, that's Smeagol, oh, not Gollum. Uh, excuse me. Yeah. So this is clearly setting up and foreshadowing something, right? This is obviously not just a throwaway, but we're going to use the Gollum later. So keep that in the back of your head. It's Chekhov's Gollum, my precious. Yes, yes, yes. He, then we have a moment where Sutra and Soji are having a conversation. And it's a very sinister conversation, at least on Sutra's part. Did anybody else think that Sutra was perhaps an offspring of Lore and not Data? Yes. I, I didn't think she was Lore's child, but she was going to serve Lore's role. It, it was the sexy walk when she came on screen that gave it away. Oh, because Lore has a sexy walk? Oh, yeah. You didn't, you didn't know that? Uh, yeah. You didn't watch that? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Those boots were made for walking. Hell yeah. Way to work it. <laughs> Soon after, they, the, the team starts to break up and they start to go their separate ways to accomplish certain tasks. And just before Rafi leaves Picard, they have a, a touching moment where she says to him, after everything you've done for me, thank you and I love you. This is something that I'm not going to yield on. I'm just not going to yield on this. I'm sorry. But Picard trashed Rafi's life. Like, no question about it. There is no in-between-the-lines to read here. And I encourage anybody, if you can find something of substantial weight to show that Picard didn't screw up Rafi's life, please bring it to my attention. Because if you read the novel, the Picard novel by Una McCormick... Which you shouldn't have to do. you shouldn't have to do. Sure. And then if you watch this series, Picard has done nothing but take advantage of Rafi's dedication to Starfleet and to him. In Una McCormick's novel, she sacrifices her family, she sacrifices her career, and then in, in Picard, in the second episode where we are introduced to Rafi, she says to him, 
paraphrasing here. Mm -hmm. In 14 years, you couldn't even pick up the phone and call me. I was here in my hovel, desert hovel. hovel. Was the word, yes. And you're off in your chateau. And so what has he done for her? He takes advantage of her, her addiction. He takes advantage of her uh, weakened mental state when she's high or and drunk. So what did Picard do for her? I got nothing. I'm with you. I'm with you. I fully, I'm like, what the? Yeah, yeah it just it just wasn't established. So anyway, the reason I'm holding on to that is because I think that Rafi was a drug addict that was comedic relief on the show, and it should not have been that way. Drug addiction should not be treated like that. I am 100% behind the legalization of marijuana in the United States. I think that it is a medicine that can help a lot of people. But there's a difference between something like legalizing medical marijuana and romanticizing drug addiction. Rafi is not medicating with medical marijuana the way that some people might. She is killing the pain, the emotional pain, the emotional damage that she has experienced. She is an addict. She has a problem that is not addressed and instead take it advantage of. This was not a progressive, legalize it interpretation for entertainment television. This was just uninsightful writing towards addiction. Well, not only that, I was expecting there to be a um, little bit of a redemption story in her story arc yes. this season, and right. th that, that didn't happen. No, no. As a matter of fact, later on in the two-part finale, she's around the campfire still smoking up on the vape. It's yeah. subtle. You don't notice it, but she's holding it in her hand. Oh, I didn't notice. Nope, I didn't notice either, but uh, it doesn't surprise me. They, they, the arc could have and should have been getting her, getting back on the road because it turns out that maybe her crazy theory was right. Her son rejecting her, maybe a relapse, but I don't think she should have relapsed. And I think she should have been like, no, I'm going to, this is my opportunity to, to show that I was right in the first place 14 years ago when I thought that the Romulans were doing bad things and the, the synth thing was a, a hoax or a plant or whatever it was. Then uh, showing and, and then redeeming herself in the eyes of her old captain. Like, you, sh this, is what you this is what you missed out on, JL. We could have been doing all this all these 14 years rather than you hiding in your house and me, you know, getting blasted on the electric lettuce. Um, you know, that, that could have been a much more, uh, I, I, th I think, a much more entertaining look and a much more Star Trek look at people having problems but overcoming them mm -hmm. by facing a common adversity. That would have been a lot better for Star Trek, I thought. All right, so here's where things start to change for me with respect to the episode. Now, a, a few episodes back, I had said, this is not the Picard that I remember, right? And this is not the Picard that, that inspired me watching TNG, you know, or inspired others, at least to me, right? This is just not him. But... After Nepenthe, and after he gets slapped in the face, metaphorically speaking, by Deanna Troy and, and Will Riker, we are starting to see the Picard we're used to. The monologue Picard. The, and that's okay. That's yeah, all yeah, right. Yeah. You know, I, it's funny to say it that way, but monologue Picard, who is about hitting you over the head with themes, questions of morality, and uh, all that is wholesome and good in the world. And the first time we see that in this two-parter is when Picard is talking with Soji and Soji is starting to side with Sutra and she's telling him this. And he says things like, oh, all right, so you're, 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 you want to take a life to save a life? You know, what is this about the logic of sacrifice? 
he starts to really put on the Picard toupee. Ha. Ha. And <laughs> act like the captain that we saw in the 80s and 90s. I agree. I mean, we, we you saw him kind of a shell with Deanna and Riker a little bit. And it, it may be a case of too little, too late. Um or even never had the, had the opportunity with, with Soji because, you know, they just met uh, an episode or so ago. But he uh, he's paying a little bit of a price for not winning the argument 14 years ago because, remember, Soon says they didn't listen to him then, they're not going to listen to him now. So, I mean, that's that was good. I like the fact that they are... Uh, that they show that, that that failure continues to have consequences and repercussions. But I think that if they had... Uh, let him win too early, right? If they had, if they had let him win too early, if they had, if they had let him win that argument with Soji early on, then the show would have been over, right? They couldn't have, uh, you know, ramped up the drama. But I also think that you have to let Soji fail too, right? You have to let her not measure uh, not measure up the first time. And I think that I think that was important though um, uh, to to show both the consequences of Picard's earlier failure and to let Soji not measure up the first time around. And she doesn't. No. And that's how the first part of this two-part season finale ends, where she has decided that all organic life needs to be exterminated. So now we move on to part two of the season finale. The prologue is a Romy Lannister scene that I really don't care about. Anybody have anything to say about that? I do, because where the heck did Arissa come from? I thought she got transported off that ship, and then all of a sudden she's back on the ship, and like he just shows up. Because he was hanging out. My understanding is that she, I mean, the, the, I mean, the way it was set up is that she did transport out, but I guess she just transported to another part of the ship. That makes no weird. sense. I know. I'm like, Why? where was she hiding? There was I nothing mean, left a, to do on that ship. They it's just vented. Cube. They just vented the place. Uh, yeah. I mean, all the Borg went. Okay, so she just shows up. Whatever. Also. <laughs> Have you guys thought about the fact that there's a cloud of Borg just floating in space now? Mm -hmm. Just because they can survive in space, we know that from yeah. first contact. Yeah, they're they're right, right now. They're they're whatever uh, they they have anybody who has a Ziploc bag or a snack pack is opening that for a little puff of air to push each other together. <laughs> then they're gonna link arms into a giant Borg like skydiving sphere, <laughs> and they're gonna assimilate each other somehow. I think that's season two. Season two, we're gonna see that. What became apparent to me in this, uh, these opening scenes was that Narek is no more impressive than Buster Bluth from Arrested <laughs> Development. He comes right so out and admits what? it. He's, he's so Buster Bluth. He's, he is <laughs> legit Buster Bluth. He is the... I just want you to be proud of me, big sister. The misfit. Yeah, I just want you to be proud of me. I'm really not as stupid as you think I am. I can do this. I found them. I found them. <laughs> Ignore the hook on my hand. I am I am A-OK. -okay. I am as cool as everybody else. Uh, so, yeah. So we learn about that. We learn, we learn that of Narek, that he's not as sinister as we might have thought, but he's really just a bumbling moron that that was trying to prove himself to his family. I, I think we give him a little bit, a little bit a more horny bumbling. Yeah, more. A horny bumbling more. That yeah. So uh, with a foot fetish. <laughs> and yes. His sister, but his sister just comes right out and just says it. Oh, you found the colony? Yep, sure did. How many of you slept with? Well, like none. <laughs> so I mean, it's just you know he gets no respect from his sister, but I think that that made him want to do more, right? It's it had it's his encouragement. It's his it's his motivation. 
Please accept me. I am not the bumbling idiot you think I am. All right, so now we get to another moment where I think production dollars and time could have been better spent. And that was story time around the campfire. First of all, you just got the power core or whatever fixed with the magical hand wavium device. So y'all could like hang out in front of the replicator and have a, and have a decent meal. What's with the campfire and the sleeping out, outside at night? With the electrical storms, huge plot point, this planet at nighttime is covered in electrical storms. They're not, no, they just go outside. They, they go back in at the end of that scene. It, it makes even less sense then. So they just went outside for a smoke break. Literally, we're going to set some wood on fire. Where'd the wood come from? I don't know. But we've got uh, Rafi with the vape there. So maybe she had a, a secret stash of firewood on board too. But they, the the ambiance of the campfire story, right? I mean, it's pretty clear we're going to tell the ghost stories around the campfire at night. But they went straight to Battlestar Galactica again. Right. All of the, you know, what, what was that quote? You have it, you have it in here. And uh, it's... Uh, it has happened before. Yeah, and it'll I believe it's again. history. It always repeats itself. Ooh, and then cut to a scene of a Cylon warbird. I mean, a Romulan raider. I mean, a Romulan <laughs> warbird that looks an warbird? awful lot like a Cylon raider. So it's right. and then you have a, you're, you've got a planet full of androids and multiple copies of Soji number eight. I mean, it's it's it, it, the, the the homage is strong with this one. Let's put it that way. Well, you got to set it up because now we have a heist. Oh, oh, a heist? Oh, gee, Rick. Oh, gee. You son of a bitch. I'm in. If any of you who watch <laughs> Rick and Morty know of the heist episode, um, yeah, the, the, all the, you know, friends become enemies, enemies become friends. You have a <laughs> bit of uh, people getting together and uh, trying to plot to stop the synths from uh, issuing uh, uh, gotta, uh, global galactic apocalypse. Hey, Brian, you got, you, got, you, got a secret, you got a secret compartment there, Brian? You got a secret compartment in, in, inside an inside a unsuspecting uh, a, a vessel of some kind? You got a... You got a, you got a, you got a, you got a distraction of some kind. You got a, got a, you got a, 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 you got a prisoner. You got a fake prisoner there. You're gonna, you're gonna pull uh, the uh, imaginary imagination tool as a Deus Ex Machina. Uh, I'm just kidding. This was a good show anyway. I'm just <laughs> it's better than Discovery. <laughs> That's a low bar. So the, the enemies uh, become friends and uh, they put together a plot to destroy the beacon that summons Unicron, the ultimate AI civilization that will kill and destroy and exterminate all organic life. But Sung discovers that Sutra helped Narek, and now he's a member of the heist crew. Right, because the murder of one of us, one synth uh, means that the whole thing was a bad idea. I mean, they're going to wipe out all biological life. Uh. My point was, like, I thought Sutra had killed Saga all along. Like, I thought she just set Narek up. And, I mean, it turns out Sort of in a way, but as soon as that happened, where you see uh, Saga, I'm like, oh, she did it. Yeah, they love that. They, they have uh, the the motivation for Soong joining them. I guess okay if you go for the mad scientist thing, but the motivation for him switching doesn't make any sense at all. He was complicit with the with the genocide of all biological life in the galaxy until yeah until she decides to kill us uh, a, a co AI yeah so yeah, that I'm, I'm, what do you call him <laughs> yeah I, I don't know the synthetic whatever I mean, I, it doesn't that makes zero sense to me whatsoever all right so things start to kick up and now the action starts to uh, ramp up here especially with space battles and whatever's happening on the ground again this these scenes coming up 
really, really do a great job at representing Picard in the way that he was in TNG, on television TNG. The monologuist, right? The, you know, but he says some important things, right? He says things that are quotable, that are that are memorable. You know, fear is an incompetent teacher. He talks, and, and still injecting some humor because when he calls them hermits, the two hermits, I'd laughed because of the way he delivered it. This was the Picard, this monologue about what he has to do and why he has to do it and how the synths are like children. This was the Picard that I remember. The, the diplomat of the next generation. I mean, it was just, I, I, I liked it. I personally, I really did like this scene. I did too. I loved it. He's willing to sacrifice everything for his principles because it's the right thing to do, and that's what he's going to do, and everybody is aware of that. Right. You know what I like about loved- it? It was it advanced what? the plot and gave people motivation. I really enjoyed the fact that it advanced the plot and gave people motivation. <laughs> I felt like a lot of that was missing a lot of times, but it really it's got its space right there. Well, and then we get some awesome fan service with Starfleet warping in, and the man in charge is none other than William Riker. I I that was cool. That was kind of cool for me. Yeah, from like a from a logistical admiralty you know, uh, hierarchical sense. It makes absolutely zero sense to put retired William Riker in charge of 100 starships a day after he asks for special permission. But it was cool. It was. Just, it was well, well, they did it. They did it for Picard. It, it, mean, it was just like, cool yeah. to see Jonathan Frakes in the, in the in the chair, in the big chair. That was just cool. Yes. I mean, yes, at that yeah. point, they figured, oh, hey, she's gone. Like, what happened to her? Maybe we should put Riker in charge of this. <laughs> well, you know what? That's a really good example. These are these are moments, these are scenes that should have made it into the final cut of Picard, sacrificing the fireside chat that we got about Gormagander or whatever the heck they were, <laughs> yeah. the big Romulan baddie. We didn't need story time. We needed context. And we already knew that the Romulans, you know, had didn't want this to happen for one reason or another. We didn't need that scene, but we could have used a scene where maybe Riker goes up to um, Clancy. That one, yeah, Clancy, Clancy, yeah, and says, look, I'm I'm the one for this. I'm the one for this job. I'm going, you know, something like that. Um, so another missed opportunity and uh, something else that probably would have been better, better than what we got. Um, you know what else should have made it in the show? More than one starship. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dang, because I was like, hey, those all look the same. <laughs> I have a problem with this for a few reasons. It, it, the, the whole th- sequence felt rushed, so it felt like their VFX team was very rushed. But my issue is with the context of what those starships are. They're supposed to be the latest and greatest, but Utopia Planitia had been blown up and the entire Mars planet destroyed. So where exactly... 14 years did, ago... Uh, if you if you blew up the entire U.S. Navy right now or their shipyards, do you think they'd be rebuilt? Yeah, but right years? now, though, you're talking about 200 years in the future yep. where where there's replicator technology and a whole bunch of other stuff. So maybe they're not at full capacity, but I have to I would have to think that other there have to be other shipyards. I think you'd have elsewhere. a whole bunch of older ships in that fleet, not a hundred of the newest ones. Uh, now I'm playing devil's advocate here because I agree with you, and interesting you say about it be having been rushed because it seems that one of the crew members on Picard had taken to Instagram and had said on like something like March 20th, that's a wrap for Picard. Well, last Tuesday. So in theory, what that Instagram post suggests is that they didn't wrap until 
either the 10th or the 17th of March. And the time of this recording is the 31st. So if they were already working from home because of COVID-19, if they were already down to the wire and didn't have this done, oh yeah, there was probably quite a bit of copy-paste assets happening for that scene. Uh, it, it's too bad that that's how that's going to go into the can for all time and alternity, and maybe we'll get a, a director's cut uh, re-release at some point. But yeah, I, I, I think they 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 knew either they knew going in there was going to be a problem, or uh, they rewrote it at the end because it was going to be a problem because uh, Frakes delivers the line, and I got a hundred more just like it behind me. Uh, so I mean, either they they knew it in time for filming that there was going to be a copy-paste job, or they, they changed the script because they saw that problem on the horizon. Right. So. Or they were like, we just replicated these ships. It's like a kit bash. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, I think it was Duncan Idaho posted on Twitter. He had already gone into Star Trek Online and tried to kit bash the starship that Riker is on. There was even Jay a Newsweek article. Yeah, there was even a Newsweek article kind of tying in the ship and what's happening in Star Trek Online. And, and then Duncan Idaho, I believe it was, went into on Twitter and shared his kit bash, which is a kit bash of the Sovereign. Um, so, yeah, check that out. You might already be able to get that ship in game. I don't, I don't know. Well, those Romulan ships were pretty sweet. I'm sorry. What yeah, were the, I, the one Romulan ship? Yeah, that they one. Or the other one? Yes. I the, mean, you yes. know, either one. <laughs> You know, I you know I will say I was disappointed that we didn't get a much better space battle. I mean, how about the La Serena and the other La Serenas? If the I look, I will say that I laughed out loud when Gerardi replicated her. That face. was a good bit. That was funny. That was that was, that was, that was a bit. funny bit. That was because she's mwah. she's also got the face for it, and Absolutely. it worked it, beautifully. It, that that scene worked. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Cat, you wanted to talk about Seven and Arissa duking it out. I think we've talked about it before. Maybe it was just a necessity, but seven. Yeah, get her. <laughs> it was so good. And she deserves it because she's, you know, Romy Lannister. Right, and, and she, but right. she'll be back. She'll be back, though. Cause I know, but back. that's the thing. Yeah, her kicked die. her over the edge. I'm pretty sure she's not dead. I don't no know. No one's ever really gone. <laughs> I never we saw ne- We didn't it. see her. Yeah. And her eyes didn't close, so if, yeah. right, if they don't... Yep. Close her eyes and you don't see the death, then they could very well be alive. Yep. She's down there getting borgified as we speak. <gasps> Maybe she's got... Oh, Ooh, I hadn't thought of that. Oh, yeah, yeah she she's totally getting borgified because it'll be good comeuppance. What happened to her auntie? Like, that... She didn't get killed. They didn't show her dying when they did that whole extermination of the XBs. Yeah, you see, these are questions that are... That should have been addressed because there were big Yay. things... There were big plot points throughout the, the 10 episodes. So, yeah, so, uh, who knows? Who knows? Rather than her getting Borgified. So we know that synths, or we presume that synths have to be created in pairs, right? Why are they now being created in pairs? And one of my theories that I've, that I've been stewing in my head is that Nerik and Nerissa are actually synths. Oh, interesting. Because if Nerissa survived that message. Oh, she, and she was, was the only even one phased by completely, it. Yeah, she was completely unfazed by it. But she didn't activate, and she also didn't... Oh, she activated. In, oh, yeah. Activated. Yeah, I think those synths in pairs were because of the data uh, consciousness, right? Yeah, they, they explained... Had to have yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Gerardi explained that. That was, that was her That was her thing in uh, episode one, where she's like, yeah, it's like, where's the other one? You know, she's like... Oh wait, there's two of them. Like, she, and they're like, yeah. When you do it, you have to do it like this because you make two of them. So, the fractal neuronic cloning or whatever it was. That's right. 
All right, so moving on to probably some of the best scene work in Star Trek history. Spoiler alert, Picard sacrifices himself for the synth populace and ultimately for Soji. Because as Picard says, the whole point is to save each other. Picard sacrifices his life. He makes it down to the planet. He is laying there in Rafi's arms and he passes away. We, we, you know, he says, you were right to Rafi and then dies and we don't know what that was about. But not to worry because we were set up with the golem. Gum, gum, gum! Smiggles Right? We, it was obvious that he was going to be put into the golem, especially that it was announced that there was a season two. Right? So there wasn't much of a surprise there. Picard was not going to die. The surprise um, would have been if he did. That would have been... <laughs> and yes, and I'll, we'll get to that in a second. But um, I, let's talk about that simulation, right? Where or the simulacra or whatever, right? Where where Picard and Data are sitting across from one another. This was classic Trek, absolutely classic Trek. Do you guys agree? Do you disagree? No, I. I and why not? I, I I was not a fan because this was another one of those deals where they it was too long. Right. It was it. If this was what they were aiming for the whole time, Picard coming to terms with Data sacrificing himself. If that was the whole point of the whole journey, we really could have skipped the uh, sad moments with Elnor and Seven and Chris. We could have gotten to the chase with Picard and Data and done it one time. Um, we did. We we could have just had it and 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 had it over with. I, my, so wait, what you're saying is we didn't need him to die in front of Rafi and Elnor and have these last words. We could have just gone into the simulation. Yes, that that because if the if the whole point of the of Picard's arc of Picard's arc was almost it's almost you know his redemption from being the sad morose old man alone in his house to going back out and you know having some adventures at the end of season one and starting of season two. If the whole point was he had to get over Data's loss, they should have just gone to that. This should fade out of him dying in Rafi's arms, come up, and that's it. Come come up with with Data, and then go to Data's funeral. It, that should have been it. Because the news. Okay, I agree the, with you the, there, but the news already got out that we had a season two. All that stuff in the middle was just sort of wasted time. And that scene with Data needed to have been. Uh, we we didn't need to go back in to watch Data get on the couch. That's the other part of it that we didn't need to see either. It could. Ooh, I disagree with you there, no, sir. No, I, I disagree with you there. Uh, I, I thought it was that. weird. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't feel it. Oh, I did. No, I I felt it too. I but felt, I'm with I you felt can. like I was a little confused because Data's like, this was all a simulation or a simulacra or whatever. And then I'm like, wait, but when did that start? I mean, when. Was it from when he beamed down, like after he said the last words to Rafi? Exactly. But was it exactly? But was it what? What parts of the simulation was it all a dream? Right. Exactly. And then I was like, Oh my yes. god, what just happened? We don't need any of that. Okay, I get, I get skipping the whole goodbye Elnor, goodbye Rafi, goodbye Gerardi, goodbye Rios. I get all that. I get. I, I agree. I, that was kind of wasted time. He should have died, and we should have immediately just whitewashed transition, and it's him and Data sitting on the couch. But we don't we don't need to go back and see Data dying. We don't need to go back and see that, because the whole point is Picard getting over Data. This isn't Data's story. This is Picard's story. Right, so why why would we not... It's Picard's story, but he needed the closure. The whole This whole arc, this whole adventure, was because Picard couldn't accept the fact right, that right. Data sacrificed right. so, He's so, talking about the flashbacks when they're unplugging Data's yep. uh, isolinear chips. Uh, 
we don't, we don't need to cut back and forth to that and 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 get all, and get all that stuff too because it does raise the question what has data what has data been doing for the last 14 years i mean what what has he just been running in, in temporary stasis on on Soong's desk for 14 years now i have more questions well he has been cre- they've been creating these twins all the so Kat, to, I think you, did you ask how data got in the simulac in the simulation? Is that what you no, asked before? No, my question was like, when did this simulation or simulacra start? Like, was it from for data? I think it was since he was downloaded off of B four. Exactly, and but for Picard, was it when he said goodbye, or was it? It's unclear. Like, which part of that was simulated? So for for Picard, I think it was the moment that we get back in and he's he wake kind of wakes up and Data comes in and he says, "Is this a, is this another damn dream?" Right. But even then, you're like, Wait, "Really?" Wait. I just wanted Data to be like, 14 years <laughs> can give you such a crick in the neck." <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I all right. So yeah, you. In this scene, sure, you have to suspend some disbelief here. Data's been locked away in some kind of stasis for 14 years, and Picard is now having his brain transferred over to to the Golem. Suspending disbelief aside, I think that the dialogue between the two of them was well, another instance of well-written conversation that bookended, maybe something that didn't need bookending, but something that definitely drove the plot for this 10-episode arc which was that Picard was living the last 14 years of his life, self-pitying himself for the loss of his friend, for the loss of the, the saving Romulans, all these things. And that conversation with Data, I thought, was just classic Star Trek, just something straight out of an episode of TNG that the two of them, you know, are saying goodbye. Now, would I have, would I have wanted Picard to have switched into that golem? Absolutely not. I am not interested in any of that nonsense. Get that noise out of here. Kill Picard. Let's end it. Let's hem- let's both of them walk into the sunlight together. That but we nice. didn't get that. We didn't get it. We didn't get it. And what we got was Picard finally being able to say, I love you to Data to close that door. And then for Data to fight, to get more than just a an explosive death. So... Now that data has been unplugged, can they not make new synths? Oh, that's a that's a good but point. But we don't know. But don't worry, all they have to do is just plug the memory chips back in, and there you go. I was wondering about that too. Yeah, you're telling me in 14 years this thing's never lost power once. <laughs> or Soji, like Cylon Number Eight, has a baby. There you go. That's right. <laughs> right, right. They it's happened before. It'll happen again. <laughs> <laughs> On a different network. <laughs> so then Picard gets it switched into the golem. They explain the whole golem thing and how he's really, yeah, you're a synth, but you're going to die like you normally would die. It's, so in other words, it's just a it's just extension. A, uh, like something. A yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not. Picard I'm not. 2.0. Pre- <laughs> I'm trying hard. I'm trying really hard not to think about it because I already have a hard time with the concept of consciousness and how transporters affect consciousness and whether or not you're just transporting and creating a copy, what happens to the concept of the soul, quote unquote, and now you're talking about moving 
the mind into a is it really Picard or is it just you know you know I'm really looking forward to see how they do an uh, homage to altered carbon in season two of Picard uh, right that's that's, right. That's, yes. that's, that's, yes. that's what I'm looking yes. forward to also if they didn't they could have brought Picard back in a number of ways they could have done what they did to Riker and just said oh well a copy of him was accidentally sent back to him to a planet and here he is yeah I get yeah it's so many different things but um I do want to take a moment to to focus on blue skies because I think it's very important to always listen to what's happening in a show like Picard, right? It's not just it's not just the Mona Lisa, it's the entire portrait, right? So Blue Skies is playing in the background, sung by Soji, the actress Isa Briones. And for those of you who are, you know, who enjoy the old crooner music, you know, the Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, the Rat Pack, you name it, you know that this song is typically sung up-tempo. It is, it's it's a up-tempo, dancey song, right? Like it was in Nemesis. But, like it was in Nemesis. But, Jeff Russo made the conscious decision to play this song as Data is disappearing into the ether, but in a very unique way. Okay, now, for, for those of you unaware, Blue Skies was written by Irving Berlin, a Jewish immigrant composer, American composer. If you listen to traditional Jewish music, there are, it, 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 it's quite minor. And when I say minor, I mean the, the key in, the keys in minor, right? Uh, Hava Nagila, you know, but they are still jovial songs. So Irving Berlin's, especially Blue Skies, you'll hear these minor chords that are still set to up-tempo songs, right? That give the song character, that give the song more than just the stereotypical music theater jive we'll just say and so jeff russo's score really focuses on those minor chords the dissonance of of the key of the of the notes and the movement in addition to slowing the tempo right we get an entirely different experience to blue skies haunting something that is exactly something Very that is haunting. haunting something that is reflective that makes you stop and think so, and I and I, I have to thank Allie because Allie and I, the moment we, we watched it, we ran to the piano and I started singing it. We started talking about it. We started kind of breaking it down to kind of really understand why. Why they, not only why did they bring back Blue Skies, but more specifically, how they brought back the song. So listen to it again. Listen to, go on, on iTunes, listen to the, to the soundtrack White Christmas. Uh, the Broadway musical White Christmas, uh, that song's in there. I, you know, I, this song is fresh in my mind because I just played Bob from White Christmas two years ago, two Christmases ago. So it's very fresh in my mind. And so to hear this arrangement of Blue Skies was very, was fascinating and a, a wonderful opportunity for me to explore how music influences a scene and influences the emotive response to what's happening on screen. It was smart. It was just a smart use of the song. A absolutely smart rendition and a smart arrangement. And Isa Briones is a talented triple threat. Or, well, I don't know. I've never seen her dance. But she's a talented actress. Season two. Who well, has, you see her slide down a board cube. That counts. That's true. That's true. <laughs> who has been on Broadway, who has done musical theater, comes from a music theater family. Yeah, so so listen to it again. Let it sink in. And, I, you know... Ali was the one who said this, but the only way that scene would have been more heart-wrenching is if Spot had jumped on Data's lap at the very last minute 
and then faded away with him. I was already crying. That just made it a million times worse. <laughs> that would have been such a great little touch, just having Spot hop on and curl up and then f- fade away with him. Oh. Right? Right? So what's next for season two of Picard? Well, at the end of it, we saw everybody hop back on La Serena. Gerardi and Rios are a happy couple. So are Seven and Rafi while playing Kalto. And we have a new bridge crew. So what? what's the theme for this season of Picard? Nothing matters. <laughs> uh, we got renewed. We, we got a second season. It's... <laughs> Uh, we're in the money. <laughs> All right. Yeah, no. I'm like representation, like, you know, um, diplomacy. I, I mean, I, Picard is racking up a humongous bill with, with Rios. I mean, I don't know how he's going to pay for this. His, his retirement, he's going to have to sell the chateau. Like, yeah, Rios. Yeah, that's a good chateau. point. He's, yeah. <laughs> Kidding aside, what what are your takeaways from the series? What what are what do you think were the themes they were trying to touch on, and address and give to the audience? I already said my bit. The whole thing was Picard never got over Data's death. That that was it. That was why he was trying to save Romulus because that you know Data died during the mission where they were trying to save Romulus. Uh, you know, and so he never really got over it. And this was how he gets over that and how he moves on. And so. He's back. And now he's got a new crew with him, and they're going to go do some adventures, which is why there's a season two. But uh, I mean, And if you want yeah. emotional depth, you got to kill Data. Yeah, it worked in Nemesis. So. Oops. Well, you know, his whole life is, you know, trying to make everyone else uphold moral standards of the Federation and accept, you know, different cultures and different species. And, you know, this is a new species that, and now he's a part of it. And everyone needs to recognize that. And moving forward, will you recognize you know, AI as sentient life. I'm thinking that's going to be an issue. My issue is I don't know what his future goal is. So he's gotten he's gotten the Federation on board for de- defending the Synths because they showed up right. with a, fl- a fleet of 100 of their most expensive starships. Uh, he's uh, said goodbye to his friend. He has no goals left. What's he going to do? Fight Romulans? I don't want to spend too much time thinking about what might come in season two. Maybe we can save that conversation for, for... Well, but that's my issue with having a season two. Like, they didn't leave... They left characters alive so that we have characters for season two, but they left no motivation. Oh, I this, see. Yeah. This was made to be a single season show, and it, it's very apparent now that we we have nothing to look forward to. I thought there'd be a cliffhanger at the end of season one. I did, too. I did, too. So, overall... Uh, personally, I I did enjoy this ride, and I thought it was better as a binge than uh, than episodic. Um, it gave us fan service, quite a bit of fan service, more so than Discovery for sure. Uh, bringing back characters like Jonathan Frakes as Will Riker, Marina Sirtis as Deanna Troy. Uh, these these moments where they harken back to old episodes of TNG. There was fan service galore here. Not necessarily bad fan service, right? You can tell Shabon is a Star Trek fan. Not only his his right. interviews and stuff, but he, he for the there were missed opportunities we've identified them, but for the most part, he remembers and salutes the catalog, and right. and that that really came through for the most part in this in Picard. And you notice these things specifically, like we mentioned already, the dialogue, you know, dialogue moments between Rafi and Rios, between Picard and Hugh. Between Rios and Seven later on, you know, in, in this, in these last two episodes, Picard and Data, of course, talking about regret, self-sacrifice, closure. These are 
at its core themes that we saw and heard in TNG. Um, and it was refreshing to hear those things again. But yeah, I mean, yeah, there were certainly missed opportunities. And I think that certain scenes didn't need to happen. And other scenes could have been filmed to bring, to make it more cohesive as a season plot. And to add more depth. Right. And to add more depth. You know, I, I, for me, like the big example that I can give is instead of having all those hollows and it being a, a joke, right? Let's spend more time learning about who Rios was. Instead of him not just telling Rafi what happened aboard the Ibn Majid, I would have rather them do a cutback. A, uh, flashback? What is it called? Flashback. Flashback? Flashback. I would have rather them have done a flashback where we see this and we see Rios react to what's happening to him. I think we would have been more connected to Rios. Instead, he was a... a a character that happened to be Latino, you know, and I, I kind of wish that they had leaned more into, into Santiago Cabrera's acting chops. You know, let's see the drama. Let's see this, the, the, that moment. Yeah. They fully could have introduced a flashback. You know, maybe he was sitting around and reading his book before, you know, before Picard beams on where he flashes back to his old captain in the old ship. I mean, that, yeah, that could have been done in the first couple of episodes and we didn't need all the other stuff. Um, I think Simi, in, uh, who's watching us on Periscope right now, is right. Most Star Trek has a really rough season one. And I think Picard had a strong first season. Is it great sci-fi? Is it good sci-fi? Does it hold up to what sci-fi has been pushing out on other channels like HBO or even Fox? Or It's better than the sci-fi channel. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. It's better than Sharknado, absolutely. Uh, it's better than Discovery, in my opinion, absolutely. But uh, yeah, I think this is the strongest first season of Star Trek we've ever seen. But is it really a first season? Or is it the continuation? Is it TNG season nine, uh, eight? Uh, they had some help. I mean, I, that, they did. They, they had a running start, let's put it that way. So this is where probably a lot of Star Trek series would be at season two-ish, you know, midway through season two. They do have to get their legs under them. They have to introduce the characters, get to know the characters. They have to iron out production problems. Uh, all that other stuff is, you know, finding the wings uh, a little bit. I expect season two will be better, even though it's not clear to us right now what the hell they're going to make season two about. Uh, I'm sure that problem will solve itself because they have writers. Uh, but I, I think that if they have the ensemble back, the mix of old characters like Picard and Seven with the new characters, uh, you know, Gerardi and Soji and, and those people, I think that's a good place to start uh, and to keep that running start going. That wraps up this week's On Screen for Star Trek Picard. Now let's open hailing frequencies and see what's incoming. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See Well, Captains, hailing frequencies are now open, and we're ready to receive all of your incoming messages. This week we asked, which stow duty officer is your go-to officer for your favorite builds? From Facebook, Devin Rowland writes in and says, Elder Malikitan on all builds and the Emergency Con Hologram on all builds. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with that doff, Elder is a Gamma Recruit Reward who gives the player a plus 10% bonus on all damage in both space and ground combat. From Facebook, David Collins also said, uh, Elder Malakatan from the Gamma Recruit event has appeared on almost all of my builds since he was unlocked. 
on PriorityOnePodcast.com, Chiyumiku writes in, I use three duty officers that grant additional security officers so that every single time I beam down a team to help me, I get a full six officers. And then my system lags out because there's 11 Starfleet officers, including myself, going pew, 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 pew. From PriorityOnePodcast.com, Tyler Maxwell writes in and says, As many as possible, gotta catch them all, Dofimon. The problem with the DOF system is, once players are done, rank 4 commendation with all the DOFs that they care about, what is there to make them keep going? The duty officer system needs to be made rewarding enough so that players will want to engage with the system repeatedly to get stuff, but not so much that it screws the game economy and needs to be nerfed. I'd love to see something where I could send some admiralty ships and my duty officers on a mission. Now that I've... The only one I don't have maxed out is recruitment. And I don't really care for it. Everything else on my duty officers are maxed out on my main character. Sounds like you're being stubborn. I guess. I might. I just don't want to have to go down to Starfleet Academy, man. It is kind of a pain, you know. It really is. All the little cadets, they they kind of crowd you because you're a super famous Starfleet guy. I want your autograph. Well, that wraps up episode 455 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. But don't fret, because there are more great shows available to you on the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Just visit podcasts.roddenberry.com for a complete list. Then be sure to subscribe to them all and share them with your friends. But we can't forget to send a special thanks to some of our Patreon supporters like Diana Gunther, Darnell Dwayne Ross, David K. Retley, Joshua Selig, and Peter Archibald. And before we go, here's a reminder of our community questions this week. Would you be excited to see Brent Spiner return as another Sung? And in Star Trek Online, will you be getting your hands on the Dequarka? Or rather, the new Tier 6 Dequarka updated ship. Captains, it's important to us that you get your voice heard and that you participate in the conversation. Leave us a comment on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com, on our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast, or find us on Twitter and Instagram at PriorityOnePod. And if you're still craving more, be sure to spend time with Winters, me, and the rest of the Priority One Armada. Saturday nights, the Armada broadcasts live to review the latest news from Star Trek Online and the Armada community, including spotlighting some of our amazing members. With regular giveaways, there's something for all Star Trek Online players, whether you're new or a veteran. Follow us on all our social media accounts for broadcast times, and if you'd like to join the Armada, visit PriorityOneArmada.com. This episode of Priority One is brought to you by our patrons through Patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com forward slash priority one. Now, captains, we understand that this is a difficult time for all of us. So if you cannot make a financial contribution, the next best thing you can do is share the show. Tell your fellow Trekkies that they can get their weekly roundup of news right here at Priority One Podcast. It's your support that keeps us going. And don't forget to tune into Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency Podcast at GuardFrequency.com. Each episode, the Guard will take you inside the universe of your favorite space sims, including a tabletop adventure played out by your hosts. And Heroes Rise brings you up to date with the world of Dungeons & Dragons. Learn all about the latest publications, tools, tips, tricks, and traps in less time than it takes to skin a wyvern. Head over to HeroesRisePodcast.com to discover their secrets. Thanks to our very special guest this week, senior content designer Ryan Levitt from Star Trek Online. 
Thanks to our audio editors, including Gray, William, Brandon, Rand, Daniel, Roscoe, and Skiffy. Thanks to our producer, Jake Morgan, and associate producer, Shane Hoover, for helping us organize and write up our summary of the weekly headlines from the Star Trek multiverse. Thanks to our graphic artist, Henry Pomper, with support from Jason Smith of the Priority One Armada. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. But most importantly, a big thanks to you the Star Trek community, our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Enemy ship on sensors. Red alert. Ready weapons. Engage. Star Trek Picard aired its final season. You know something we don't know? The Temporal Vortex Probe. Sounds... Never mind. (laughs) This console provides pass... (laughs) Leave it alone. (laughs) Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. So I was... Yeah, I was just curious. I was just curious what that, you know, what that... The sausage... Or how to make the sausage... Let me rephrase that question. There's a lot of sausage talk there. I don't really. Gotta catch them all. Dofimon. The problem with the Doff system is once players are done. It's actually Doff. Dofimon. Yeah. But it's Pokemon, so I wonder if the a long ocean goes there. Yeah, you know. I'm gonna pew pew you. <laughs> God, no. He's really taking advantage of that derivative works license. Gonna need more wine. <laughs> I really should have spiked my drink before coming up. I'm seriously. It all. I target you, you target me. Oh my god. Okay, Don't but Tyler Maxwell's not mom. done. He has more words. I choose you, whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I choose you, Jack Daniels. They're not. No, they just go outside. They they go back in at the end of that scene because you see the when they at right before the right before they cut to another scene, the. Uh, the La Serena has its <gasps> shutters closing in, so they go back. Did inside. you just say just the say La Serena? What? He I stopped himself. Stopped myself. <laughs> I stopped myself. I purposefully stopped myself. Hey, La Serena. Okay. Um. Uh. <laughs> so. Oh my God, that's a parody right there. Something, something, warp core. <laughs> We're doing it. We're doing it. Warp core La Serena. Yeah, we're doing oh it. Oh my gosh, because what are the motions that he does to, to, fl- to fly the ship? The ship. Yeah, yes. he's snapping and he's doing the thing. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh, we've created a new like phenomenon. Look it out. Nice. This is brilliant. <laughs> nice. Hey, La Serena. <laughs> Panda's on board. <laughs> yeah, we're doing this. Probably writing this after this. Absolutely. After the show's over. Okay. And uh, take notes, please. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
<laughs> podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network.